0: Hello Food World, it's Robert Crutchfield, your favorite foodie friend from Crutchfield Cooks, the podcast. I'm here with another episode exploring every corner of the food world. Okay, 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 okay. I get what a chef is. People have even accused me of being one. But what the heck is a food anthropologist? Personally, I have no clue, but like a lot of these episodes, I know somebody that does. And we have with us this episode Casey Korn, who is the host of Recipe Lost and Found on Magnolia TV, a chef, and oddly enough, a food anthropologist, and she's going to tell us all about how she uses her chef and her food anthropology skills to reco- to help people recover their lost family recipes, and we're going to talk about some more stuff. So here's Casey. Okay, I almost don't know how to describe this episode. is It's it's going to be interesting for sure. Uh, we're we're going to. The pitch that was given to me was Lost and Found Foods. So I'm going to let our guest introduce herself and get a little bit more into what exactly that means. Go ahead, Casey.
1: Thanks, Robert. I'm Casey Korn. I'm a classically trained chef and food anthropologist, and I'm also the host of Magnolia Network's show, Recipe Lost and Found. So... Recipe Lost and Found is a show. You can watch it on Magnolia Network, on Max, on Discovery Plus. And on the show, I help families recreate lost recipes that have been lost to someone passing time, you know, world events. But, you know, I feel like everyone has a recipe that they're grandparent or someone made for them and unfortunately has been lost and they want that recipe back. So I help them recreate that recipe.
0: Sounds good. I think, I think like you said, we all have recipes we remember, maybe even if not in our family, there's a whole idea of, especially in food media, of doing copycat recipes of dishes from certain restaurants and things, which is, is the same kind of thing. I have a chef, Friend, in fact, he's been on this podcast. Who growing up was not as fun for him as it was for me. Let's just put it that way. And he spent a lot of time at a a a friend of his house where they did a lot of Indian cooking. Mm -hmm. And he spent a good part of his career trying to recreate some of those dishes that he remembers from his friend's mother's house growing.
1: Wow, that's amazing.
0: So there's a lot of yeah. This month he's getting rid. this month he's getting ready to release his fifth cookbook of his own.
1: Oh my goodness, that's amazing! I don't even know if
0: he hasn't done one on Indian food yet,
1: well, I would buy it. That sounds. I, I, I've
0: wonderful. got his book. I've got his book on meat. His book on meat is like
1: this. Wow.
0: <laughs> he spent most of the pandemic writing it.
1: Good for him. Yeah.
0: Idle hands. Right. Tell you what, let's let's. You mentioned obviously you mentioned the show on Magnolia Network, but you also mentioned being not just a chef, but a food anthropologist. For for people who have never heard of anthropology, except maybe the old TV show Bones, could you go into a little bit of what a food anthropologist means?
1: Sure. So anthropology can mean a lot of things, as you rightfully said. For me, my background is in social anthropology. So connecting people across cultures by finding similarities and ways to translate culture. So for me, the best way to explain this is through food. I mean, the one thing that everyone on this planet does by choice, by culture, by not choice, by So many different ways that are influenced by who we are as people is eat. So it's a really great way to both understand how people are different, but also understand how people are the same. And that's something that I really am passionate about is connecting people through food. So it's not just, you know, how is this recipe made? Let me walk you through the steps. And it's not just the history of like, here's where the tomato comes from but understanding that, you know, whether you're in South America and North America and in India and in England and wherever you are, you're probably eating tomatoes and that that understanding hopefully can bring people together and make differences not seem quite so scary.
0: Yeah. And I know in my own standpoint, one of the reasons I tell people all the time, there's, there's literally no aspect of food that doesn't fascinate me. I mean, granted, totally. I'm 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 better at some of it than I. I, I mean, I'm better yeah. at the cooking part of it maybe than than some of the rest of it. Been doing a lot of studying food history lately. Wow! But I think it's important for people to understand that food has never just been about sustenance.
1: Absolutely. You go back,
0: you go back to some of the earliest cultures on the planet, and you find that thousands of years ago, people were moving into the idea. Of well, if my stomach's a little upset, and I I, I choose I, I choose that particular herb over there, right? My stomach's not upset. Or yes, it, it, certain foods have gotten intertwined with certain events in life and certain mm-hmm. events during the year too.
1: Absolutely.
0: And, and that's, uh,
1: yeah, that's one thing that I always find really amazing is when we would get submissions for recipes for the show. Is a lot of them are holiday recipes because that's when families are together, when foods become significant and traditional, because you're repeating these same dishes every year. And so they hold a lot more meaning because, as you said, you know, food becomes intertwined with memory, with people, with events, and that makes them hold a lot more meaning to us.
0: Well, and some of it some of it comes down to practical issues aside from just hunger itself. I had a guest, I forget how many episodes ago. She's an Italian chef that actually was born and raised in Italy. And just she and I were talking about the food of the Tuscan region. And we were talking about how a Tuscany, for people who do not know it, is a very working class neighborhood, so to speak. And it's a it's a part of Italy where For strictly economic reasons, they have to stretch their food. Basically, they can't afford to waste anything they can't, they they can avoid wasting, which is why in Tuscan cooking, you have the number of soups that you have, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so just like we have now with, with the food inflation we've had over the last couple of three years, not only here in the United States, but around the world. That's not a new thing.
1: It's not. You're absolutely right.
0: And one of the things that we learn from history and anthropology is that these things are not, these struggles are not new. And we don't need to create new solutions to these struggles because these struggles have already been solved in the past. Absolutely. And in the previous interview with the other chef, one of the things she and I talked about was the whole issue of food insecurity. Mm -hmm. Okay. So why can't we take these basic blue collar, for lack of a better term, cooking techniques and apply them to food insecurity in modern day America? Absolutely. Well, see, that's the thing. It's like, of course, the answer is we totally can You know, we can go back to the way Tuscans were cooking food a thousand years ago and make a dent in food security in 2023 America. Go figure.
1: Yeah. And it's so interesting, you know, when you talk about those techniques, it it brings up a really interesting phenomenon, which is that a lot of these techniques have started to come back. One I'm thinking of in particular is using sort of like what we would call cheaper cuts of meat. And now, you know, these cuts like oxtail, short ribs, bone marrow, even they're expensive because people like them and want them, have experienced them in other cuisines that become, you know, trendy. And now they're expensive. You know, it used to be you could get oxtail for nothing at the supermarket. And now like, one of the most expensive things. That's because they, they started fixing
0: it on the call, all those cooking shows. And so then everybody, right. was, it's just like being from here in Houston, of course, one of our big food stories is fajitas. Oh, totally. Skirt steak used to be cheaper than dirt. Yes. <laughs> Nobody, it, it was tough. Nobody, it, it, let's be fair. It was, it, it was, it was this tough, dry, chewy, who wants it meat yeah. until Ninfa Lorenzo, who most of us here know as Mama Ninfa here in Houston. In fact, I've actually been to her original, it's been years, but I've been to her original restaurant down in the barrio <laughs> that used to be the backside of her house because she was a widowed single mother and had to cook to, to feed her kids. And she originally w- produced one of her main dishes with what the, the traditional name is tacos you see
1: mm-hmm.
0: which means I know you know, but I'm, for the sake of our audience, I'm explaining okay. that tacos are All that means is taco meat cooked over an open flame. Well, taco meat cooked over an open flame is what we generally know as a fajita. And of course, just like you were talking about, the fajita became very popular, very trendy for a lot of different reasons. All of a sudden, please try to buy skirt steak.
1: It's, I mean, it, it's so funny you said skirt steak because that was when I graduated from culinary school and I, I'm from LA originally and I moved back there and, you know, we eat a lot of tacos as well and would want to make, you know, tacos for friends. It's like the only thing I could afford was skirt steak and now I can't buy it.
0: Dude. Oddly enough, I once blew an interview for a cooking job because I told the the manager that was interviewing me that if he showed me some flour and some skirt steak, I'd make him some fajitas. <laughs> He's like, dude, 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 you don't understand my kitchen. He's like, in oh my, my kitchen, God. the only thing they know about fajita meat is it comes in the bag that says fajita meat.
1: Oh man.
0: He's, he's like, he's like, he's like, if you know what cut of meat fajitas fajitas come from, you're in the wrong place. He's like, don't get me wrong, I'd love to hire you, but you'd be bored in like a day and a half. Ugh.
1: Hilarious
0: well, it just and it, it was an interesting conversation because I was sitting there at the interview, and he was trying very deliberately and to not trash his people but to explain to me what he was saying, because the fact of the matter is his people in his kitchen are very good at what he asked them to do right the only The only thing is it became very obvious to him in a very short amount of time that what he asked his people to do is here. And what I was capable of was right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I like, you know, this idea also of, you know, using these techniques that are born in a time of need that then influence, you know, cooking for generations. And one of the episodes we did was a lasagna recipe. It's actually one of my favorite episodes. And the family was from Italy, a couple different parts of Italy. And so the, The memories of this recipe really did not describe a lasagna that you could just go online and look for a recipe and recreate. It had very specific things from different regions of Italy. And to complicate matters even more, the family had moved to Montreal, which is, you know, a big point of immigration for specifically Southern Italians into North America. And it was during the Great Depression was when this recipe was born. The family had 14 kids, I think like it was, you know, this recipe needed to feed a lot of people in a time of not having much. And the memory that this woman had of this recipe cooked by her great grandmother was that the sauce was meaty in flavor, but she doesn't remember there being meat in it. And so I did a whole lot of testing of all different techniques and i won't spoil the surprise so that you know people will go watch the episode of how we managed to recreate this but i got to go try lasagnas with a group of italian women in la who all talked about well you know my lasagna came from this part of italy and you know yes we had food insecurity and so we used this technique or we used this technique and being able to narrow down these techniques that were born of need As opposed to just, you know, creativity or a specific like flavor that they wanted. Ended up creating this beautiful lasagna. I mean, if I make a lasagna at home, I now make this woman's family recipe because
0: it's so good. Well, yeah. And it brings up the point of, and it goes back to the same thing uh, we were talking about a while ago, about things you can learn from history. It was only about 23 years ago. If I remember correctly, the researchers at the University of Miami identified the neural pathways between the tongue and the brain mm. and scientifically established the fact that umami was one of the basic tastes. Right. How many hundred years have people been making dishes like the one you're talking about where they taste meaty, but they have no meat in them? Mm-hmm. But it's only been in the last 20, 25 years that scientifically we've, we've understand how that's possible.
1: Totally, and it's you know you look at you know Asian cuisines where they you know base so much of their their flavor profiles in umami to the point where someone invented m s g, which is such a cool ingredient that has such a bad stigma behind it, but you know it's this unbelievably cool ingredient, and it's literally just this flavor that is this meaty, this caramelized, this really rich awesomeness that. Is found in food. Yeah,
0: I could I could easily argue that MSG needs a better publicist.
1: Right, I'm with you on <laughs> that
0: one. <laughs> but you talk about Asian food, it's not just MSG. Look at fish sauce, for instance.
1: Fish the sauce. The whole purpose of fish using sauce. fish
0: sauce with something is to add umami. There's and fish sauce, and fish barely. Is, even, they call it fish sauce, and there's barely even any fish meat.
1: Right, it's <laughs> so it's so fascinating, and I love that here in America we get so much access to these ingredients and and so much access to people cooking with these ingredients, because that's one of the most amazing things about getting to live in the States is there's so many people here that are cooking amazing foods and like, go try them. You don't have to actually leave the country. You can go down the road. And I mean, for me, I'm really lucky. I live in Atlanta. It's still an up and coming food city. But down the street, I have a really good Japanese restaurant that On Sundays and Mondays, there's this Lao pop-up and they do food from Lao. And like, I've never had that before. And here I am in Atlanta. And it's so good. And it's interesting and delicious.
0: It's it's like, I I live in a a community west of Houston called Katy. And it's like that here. For instance, I've got a halal butcher shop less than a block from here. Next to the Tex-Mex restaurant
1: amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so I, wonderful.
0: Yeah. But before we get too far along, I want to go can you go a little bit into more into the process involved in how you use the food anthropology. And what exactly how do you go through the steps of recreating these recipes? That's that's the part I don't want to miss.
1: Yeah, so you know, every recipe is a little bit different because that's just the nature of food. But for the most part, a lot of it is identifying ingredients. Does the family remember specific ingredients in the recipe? Sometimes even more importantly, what are their memories of eating, of any preparation of the dish? Whether it's, you know, I remember grandmother cooking it in this pot, or she always served it in this dish, or, you know, my father made, you know, always had this bottle of vinegar on the table. Like those things are really helpful in terms of identifying what's then specific to this family's recipe. And then beyond that, you know, trying to find recipes that sound similar, whether that's online, whether that's in a restaurant and identifying what's different based on what the family says to what you're seeing out in the world. Then a lot of it comes down to, to research. You know, where is your family from? When was this dish being cooked? And where was it being cooked? You know, one episode we did was this ambrosia salad, which there are 8 million recipes for ambrosia salad. And it turned out some of the biggest clues we got were all the granddaughters remembered their grandmother use, always having like good housekeeping magazines around. And we tracked down a good housekeeping magazine from the 50s where it was, you know, women, they can do it all. They can cook. They can clean. They can keep the house. They can sew, They can. And it was like all these things and also canned foods were really being pushed at the time for convenience. And so, like, let's try canned foods. You know, they thought they were fresh ingredients, but turned out, were they actually? And, you know, there's all these cool archival things you can find. And, you know, you can do this at home. There's so many great archival resources, whether it's your public library or just like internet archive. You can find any cookbook that's ever been published in the world. And then it comes down to testing. You know, for me, I managed to get a lot of testing done usually before we start filming to sort of get my head wrapped around what the recipe is, but a lot of times I test completely different things. Like we did a a meatball sauce recipe. So I know how to make meatballs. I know how to make red sauce. It was a Jewish family. I'm Jewish. I was like, how hard can this be? Well, it turned Uh, out-
0: Yeah, there's like 30,000 different kinds of red sauce.
1: 30,000 different (laughs) kinds of red sauce, 30,000 different kinds of meatballs. But it turned out that, you know, they kept saying meatball sauce, And I was making meatballs in sauce, and it wasn't. It was this really cool dish of, like, it started off as meatballs in sauce, but ended up breaking down into sort of, like, a ragu that had still, like, meatballs in it. And I never would have been able to figure this out on my own without the specific memories that this family had of this dish. And then to make that one even more complicated and add on pressure They actually had the last batch that their grandmother had made frozen, like in the freezer. So I got to try it and was like even more like, well, this wasn't what I was picturing in my head. And now the pressure's extra on because we've just eaten it and I have to recreate this. It was so fascinating because home cooks aren't chefs, you know, they're not. Standing there and making sure the meatball is perfectly browned on all sides, and then adding in the sauce and reducing things down no they they're on the phone, they're running around, they have the kids to take care of. Oh, let me go stir the sauce like it's all born of you know how their family works, and you end up with these accidental sort of like brilliant things you know the the thing I always say is, maybe your favorite dish is like your grandma's potatoes, but you've never been able to recreate them or find them because, well, grandma was busy and she burned the potatoes. But that's what you like is the fact that they were burnt. And it never occurred to you that like, oh, maybe I should just cook them too long. right.
0: Grandma
1: always forgot about them. And but that's, you know, no chef would do that. But that's what grandma did. And I love that.
0: I, I I I think that's true. And I think that's not true. I think that it's more true of chefs who had the advantage of going to culinary school because that's where you learn the rules. Mm-hmm. But I think you have to be out in the field for a while to get to the point where you know the rules, but you're liberated from necessarily following the rules. Absolutely true. And it's like, and it, it, it kind of gets what you were saying, and that kind of gets us into what I was going to talk briefly about next. And that's the whole issue of, in your experience, in my experience, it's been a lot, but in your experience, how much does technique factor into things? For instance, I've got an example from my own experience, my mother's oatmeal cookies. My mother sent her oatmeal cookie recipe verbatim to her mother. Her, the person who taught her how to cook, my grandmother, no matter how many times she attempted it, could not replicate my mother's oatmeal cookies. Yeah. Now, I learned how to make my mother's oatmeal cookies in my mother's kitchen standing next to her. Right. And it's been said in the family that, that I'm the only person ever on the planet Earth to be able to replicate my mother's oatmeal cookies. That's because I was, I learned standing right next to her and people that aren't chefs, people that aren't food people, they don't understand. It it comes down to things like, how do you hold the spoon when you pour the sugar into the Yes. Stuff like that doesn't, but the tiniest technique can make all the difference.
1: It can. There's a running joke in my family that my grandmother makes, or it's not a joke. It's true. She makes the best scrambled eggs that I've ever had. And again, I'm a chef. I know conceptually what she's doing. I've seen her cook them a million times. She showed me how to cook them a million times. But it's the the saying, the, the walk hand. It's the hand that makes the dish can be just as important as the recipe itself. And for a lot of people, you know, you and I are very fortunate. We have the understanding of the technique. We can see when someone is cooking. Oh, the way they're holding the spoon is going to change that. But not everyone has that capacity. And so a lot of times it comes down to, I can make this a million times, but it's not this person making it. And that's what makes it not the same. And so what I have found over the course of filming this show is that it's not We will never know if the recipe that I give them at the end of the show is the actual recipe. If we could know that 100%, I wouldn't need to be there, right? Like, they'd be able to have found found this recipe already. But what's more important sometimes is reconnecting them with these memories, with this person, being able to recreate the time, the place, these memories... And connect them to the food. Okay, well, now you're cooking this dish. And yeah, we don't know that 100% this is the way your grandmother made it. But we know that these are the things, these are the techniques she would have had access to, the ingredients she would have been able to find. And that can fill in a lot of the gaps. It's not always, is this recipe perfect? Is, it's, is this recipe close enough?
0: Yeah.
1: And for most people, It is because it's the connection to the food. Ultimately, that's the most important part. It's it's like, as you said at the beginning, food isn't just food. And being able to reconnect to these people, to these memories is often just as important as the dish itself.
0: Before we run out of. As I recall some of the emails we've been sending back and forth and what was said in the press release there's this rumor floating around about a book i mean you want you want to tell us a little bit about that
1: <laughs> i do, you have to tell me i'd not know. <laughs> maybe i got my
0: maybe i get my guests confused if i do i i apologize for that but i mean maybe one maybe maybe, maybe, come... maybe i got the details wrong you, Have you got any projects or anything other than the show that you want to talk about that are coming up or
1: Sure. Yeah. I, uh, well, I also am. If you, you know, are a food TV watcher, I know many people love the Great British Bake Off. Magnolia also has its own baking competition show called the Silos Baking Competition. I'm a judge on that. It's an absolute blast. You can also watch that on Max, Discovery Plus, Magnolia Network. And then personally, one of my fun things is I love mac and cheese. I think it's a really phenomenal way to explore food and food culture because it's pretty basic ingredients that you can find in almost every single cuisine. So I do a project every March. This is one of my idle hands pandemic pivots is when March Madness got canceled. I did March Macness. So I do every year in March on my Instagram, March Madness style mac and cheese competition with 32 mac and cheeses and brackets, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So if you like the show, if you like me, head to my Instagram at Casey underscore corn. And there's always some good mac and cheese content there. And then, you know, participate in March when the next March Macnus is.
0: Yeah. Don't get me started. We have a restaurant near here. i trying to remember they, they have a mac and cheese with like 13 kinds of cheese or something. Oh, geez. That's number. <laughs> And I'm, I, have an 18-year-old, I have an eighteen-year-old. I have an eighteen-year-old grandson that's a, a foodie like I am. First time I took him to that restaurant, he saw his his eyes just laser gravitated to this <laughs> thirteen cheese. He's like, "I know what I'm having."
1: <laughs> wow. Oh yeah, that would be my my go-to as well. He's, he's, he's
0: like, he's like, if, if it's got all that many cheeses on it, then then I gotta try
1: <laughs> it. I love it. Well, we
0: did that. We talked about future projects. We have got a few more minutes. If people want to keep up with all things Casey corn and, and that sort of thing, where do they go? What 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 website? What where do they go?
1: <laughs> so Instagram's probably the best place to find me and see what I'm up to. My Instagram is at Casey underscore corn, like the vegetable. It is my real name. And then my website is I am the cornivore.com. Um, like carnivore, but corn. And you could find recipes. All the recipes from the show are on there as well. So if you are inspired by any of the episodes, you can get the recipes there. And there's a little food anthropology stuff there as well. And yeah, that's probably the two best places to find me.
0: Any last minute tips or anything you want to throw out there?
1: Oh, just eat everything. Don't be scared. If it looks like food, try it. That's my rule. (laughs) I like
0: that. I like that. (laughs) Thank you, Casey. And thank you for all the good input and whatnot. And we look forward to seeing more of you.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much, Robert. This was a blast.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Casey. We appreciate you spending your time with us and explaining all these different things about food and cultures and and how to track back through things. I think everybody out there is making a new list of old family recipes for you to go find for them. And uh, I look forward to uh, more episodes of your show there on Magnolia TV. For those who want more episodes of this show, be sure and visit www.learnmoreeatbetter.com and help us keep going and growing by visiting our support page at www.ko-fi.com CrutchfieldCooks. Again, that's wwwko ficom Cooks or for more great content all the time anytime www.learnmoreeatbetter.com